It is called a walkway, not a standway. Okay. Right. Yes. Also, when you're on the escalator going down, you walk. just stand to the right yes. so that people can walk to the left. Put your bag behind you. Or in front of you. Or in front of you. Yes. Okay, I got one for you. I got oh. one for you. A roller bag should be dragged from behind, not pushed in front. You can't control the fucking thing. People who try to leave the plane with a roller bag in front of them, it's like, they look like ping pong. Yep, yep. Yes. I would just love to see people pay attention to their own ass as they walk down the aisle. Because even if you have your elbow in the seat, somebody is bound to just walk into you. Uh Uh-huh. Just have a little like self-awareness of where you are. Okay, oh. first of all, it's asking a lot for a yeah. civilization. <laughs> no, no, you're right. You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents, often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution. Sir, are your pants meowing? Yeah, are you interested? Pull up. No, the plane is about to crash. Wind shear. You're looking a little anxious, Kent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm. Increase climb. Only if you really need me to. Threw his clothes off. Had an accident. Got his tree and went night night. 50, 40. Oh, so like some dumb bro shit. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. 30, 20. I'm sorry, I'm a little overwhelmed by what you just said. 10. Hence being poked in the rear uh, as a man in the middle of the aisle. Climb now. Given the context, this does not sound like a good plan. Clear of conflict. This is an aviation history podcast, which looks at events in aviation history like air disasters, accidents, incidents, mishaps, and other crazy events that shaped aviation into what we know today. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host, and I'm the creator of this podcast. If you want to know what qualifies me to do this podcast, you'll have to go listen to episode zero. And you can learn all about me there. If you want to see pictures of the events and enhance your experience, you should follow me on Instagram and Twitter at AluminumTube. You can also email me at at AluminumTubePodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to see the pictures that I post about the episodes, you can find them on Instagram. Uh, I put them in a carefully labeled story highlights and in the gallery. And if you listen to other episodes, you already know that I always have a co-host who is not an aviation expert, at least not in the way that I'm an aviation expert. And their role is to ask questions that will help you better understand what actually happened. Yeah. So my co-host today is a returning co-host. Woohoo, number three. He is my nemesis, <laughs> David Lata. Hi. Oh my god, I'm so happy to be back. I gotta uh, thank you. This is an honor. Super stoked. Oh, nemesis. Yeah. I is this the ongoing battle between flight attendant and pilot? That's what it is. Oh no. Yeah. Is there a theme here that might have something to do with the episode? Well, we'll see. Oh, I, I know nothing. You haven't been on the show in a while, David. So last time we were together, we talked about flying cars. Yeah. There actually have been two flying car companies that have gone out of business since then. I just want to let you know. Oh my goodness. Okay. But you know, we still don't have any flying cars. So each time you're on, we'll update. Yeah. The only thing flying high right now is the gas prices. That's it. That's the only thing. Today's episode Mm -hmm. is what I consider a traditional episode. And this would be the first traditional episode that you're on. Wow. So in a traditional episode, I cover like the company and then the crew and the airplane and then we talk about the events and then uh-huh. what's changed since and you know th- that's kind of how it rolls out in a traditional episode and you've done two episodes or non-traditional episodes that's more true. like history episodes well they were written for me but sure. and they were they were written for you <laughs> but today's episode is not that far off you're gonna really like it i love it um but before we get started i'd like to ask my listeners who love this podcast or even if you just like this podcast to tell your friends about it because that's how podcasts grow. This pod is a passion project of mine. As you know, David, it's Mm. just a passion project. It's not ad supported. I don't do ads. I don't do sponsors. I haven't done any of that. I write it myself. 
I record it myself. I edit it and master it myself. And we'll be right back after we talk about these messages about a good toothbrush. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Crest toothbrushes. Right. There you go. We didn't pay for that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We can't say that. <laughs> we, can can't we? Say we can't that. say that. No, no. Scratch that. So if you like it, please leave a review. Wherever you listen to the podcast, leave a review. Tell a friend. If you want a decal for mm. inside the aluminum tube, I will send you one. All you have to do is email me, uh, email aluminumtubepodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on Instagram at aluminumtube and I'll send you a cool promo sticker. I just got mine. They're very cool. I had a guy design those. I paid mm. someone to design them. Wow. And then he gave it to me for free, which was really nice. Aww. I hired him and then he said he gave it to me for free. And then I needed an update and I hired my friend Juliana and she did the update and they the stickers look amazing. They look awesome. Update us with what has been going on in your life. Ooh. Every, I know that there's been a lot. Uh, so so much. Take it take a minute. Life is crazy. I, I love this like so far this trilogy that we have going on together because I started with this podcast, right? Being like a full fledged flight attendant, San Francisco, single, flying all over the world, being crazy. And then I got furloughed in October of twenty nineteen. Uh, 2020. Right. And so then I moved back to New York City, went back to my old job selling cars and I got an apartment and that was like literally the first, you were like one of the very first people in my apartment when I had a couch. And so now I have, uh, I have a boyfriend, I have a cute little French bulldog. Uh, the cutest is... boyfriend and uh, French bulldog. Oh yeah, They're both adorable. Um, my bulldog, my French bulldog, excuse me, his name is Jojo and he has ears big enough to be Dumbo. So it's very fitting as a flight attendant. And my boyfriend is awesome. Yes, he is. Um, I know that he loves me because he, A, hates travel, and B, knows I have no money. So he's not with me for the flight benefits. He's not with me for the money. So that's probably a good thing. Um, <laughs> There's got to be some other reason, David. Is there another reason? Maybe. Personality. Personality <laughs> helps a lot. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, but I am now going back to being a flight attendant. And that's nuts. I am no longer furloughed. And it's not ideal that I be going back right now, but that's for other reasons but it's gonna be great it's gonna be awesome i'm manifesting good things and we talked about this already but you're going to all the places that i miss because i got displaced off the wide body i love the 787 it was mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. such a beautiful wonderful airplane to fly i'm an airbus captain now but you know i have good i've got to do two years as an airbus captain and i just at this moment i'm like i can't wait and i'm gonna yeah. go back to the 787 as a first officer i but i just but the first week I'm back as my as a flight attendant for the first time since May 2019. Wow. That's a long time. It's been time. that long. Yeah. Whoa. I have been away from being a flight attendant for longer than I was an active flight attendant. For like 11 months, right. I lost my job. And then, Lost boom. your job, and then you went back to what you were doing before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. So, so I weird. I didn't even think about that. That is an interesting perspective. So but you're going back to training, so... Oh, I already did that. I actually, been, okay, I actually have gotten training twice while being away because of our annual like training things. Right. So I've actually, technically three times. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So... Um, but that's okay because I never want to touch those doors for emergency purposes other than CQ. I'm fine yes. with it. I agree with that. I am this I'm in the same boat, right? So I got hired and I went to 757-767 training. And then nine months later, I went to 787 training. And I was there yeah. for like two years. And then I went to Airbus training. And now I'm going back to Airbus training. It's like <laughs> I've been at I've been at this airline for under three years. Right. Of that time. I've spent like six months in training oh and goodness. it's no, it's driving me crazy, but it's okay. It's okay. If I see you lying down, I'm just gonna say, "Are you okay? Are right. you okay?" Exactly. <laughs> just shake me. That was a that was a first aid dummy reference. Anybody at home listening that didn't get the reference? Yes. 
Continue. Most listeners are pretty smart. I no, think. you are. Yes. And I'm not calling <laughs> Shannon a dummy at all, but yeah. <laughs> so this is a little older, but we're going to start with the airplane, okay? Oh, okay. It was an early jetliner produced by British Aircraft Corporation, thus called BAC. Mm-hmm. They nicknamed it Bach. The original concept of the aircraft was made by the hunting aircraft company as a 30-seat jet. So like 30 Ooh, seats. Yeah. Imagine that, right? A 30-seat commuter jet way back in the mid-50s. This was like a really early jet design. Hunting aircraft merged with British Aircraft Corporation, BAC, in 1960, and the design was merged, was part of the merger. So the Bach 111 was launched, but it was launched as an 80-seat regional airliner Hmm. for British United Airways. That was the launch customer. You've never heard of British United Airways. We're going to go into the... I go into the history of the companies a little bit, so Love feel free to ask questions. Also, so. the whole time you're saying Bach, I'm thinking Spock, but okay, continue. No, Bach, B-A-C. <laughs> Bach, that's Bach. Okay. So this story is about a British Airways flight, so let's not confuse that with British United Airways. Mm. So British Airways and British United Airways, two different companies. The launch customer for the Bach 111 was British United Airways. We'll cover British Airways, but... For historical purposes, we're going to talk about British United Airways just for a second. British United Airways was a privately held charter airline owned by another company, a huge company that was into logistics. It included railroads, freighter ships, obviously airlines. That company was called, the mother company basically of that was called British Commonwealth and Shipping. They later sold BUA, which is British United Airlines, to a Scottish charter airline called Caledonian Airways. They sold it for $15 million way back when, which was about $200 million in 2021 money. I mean, kind of a big company. Mm-hmm. But for my listeners who follow more closely, British United Airways actually owned British Overseas Airways Corporation. That company was the contractor providing uplift to ALM, in episode 18. So that's just a, uh-huh. a reference to a different... Here's something, you, I don't know if you know, getting into the history of airlines, it becomes very incestuous. Oh, yeah. They're all like intermingled so tightly and intertwined. And this CEO worked for here and then he jumped over here and then this company sold to this company and this company merged and it was like... I mean, Scott Kirby, look, he came from American Airlines. Now right? he's the CEO of United. Yeah. Right? So it's... It, And it's always been like that. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to the Bach 111, which is the airplane we're talking about. It first flew on the 20th of August in 1963. It was delivered to its launch customer, like I said, BUA, on the 22nd of January 1965. So Mm -hmm. old. Bach developed a larger version that had 119 seats. We went from 90 to 119. That happened in 1967. This is the version that we're going to talk about today, the larger version. In 1982, 244 Bach 111s had been built. Hmm. It's a lot, right? I don't know if that's a lot or not. So, like, stupid question. You might not know this, but, like, like how many Airbuses have been, like, A319s or whatever? If you look at A319, A320s, it's over 2,000. Okay, great. So, they've done, like, a couple hundred versus a couple thousand, right? Yeah, thousands, yeah. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, Boeing has built thousands of... 767s, for instance, there's like something like 1,700 of them right. built. So I, feel like I remember during COVID too, they were like, we're going to plan on building 
30. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, right. It's like a ridiculous number that seemed very low. That seems low. Yeah. Because it is low for that a company like a Boeing. duopoly like right. Boeing or Airbus. But at the time, you also had a lot of competition. This company builds 244 by 1982. They sold the design and the tooling to a company that was named Rombach. Basically, they took BAC and they added R-O-M in front of it mm. because it's Romanian Bach. Okay? I feel like people are not as creative with names. Well, I feel like they could be more creative. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm going to take Facebook as an example. Oh, and Twitter, yeah, yeah. Twitter, yeah. Mm. Facebook, I mean, that's pretty, I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> I call the books of faces. Yes. Like, are you on the grams of Insta or the books of faces? Yeah, right. Which, yeah. It's not TM'd. Feel free to steal. They sold it to a Romanian builder, Rombach. They only built nine more. All the production ended in 1989 after 253 were built. That's not that many, but like I said, it's kind of relative to the time there was a lot more competition than there is now. Mm. So I'm going to show you a picture of the airplane so you can have an idea of what we're talking about. Is it kind of similar to a DC-10? I don't know why I feel like DC-10. DC-9. Oh, DC-9. Okay, great. Yeah. I don't know the DC-10s very well. As a flight attendant, all the accidents we learned about you know, were like DC-10 accidents. Yeah. yeah. But interesting. Yeah, I kind of feel like, you know, Kevin, I could see like Kevin from Home Alone and that would be the plane in the background. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. So this, is, this was a competitor with the DC-9, not uh-huh. the DC-10. The DC-10 was a wide body. Oh, okay. It would have been competing at the time with the 737. Mm. It would have ultimately competed with, with the Airbus A320 and eventually even like the CRJ-700s and the oh, CRJ-900s, yeah, totally. right? So like mm-hmm. it's just kind of a smaller airplane, 120 seats. Cute. Anyway, let's get back to the story. Mm-hmm. If we describe the airplane, it's... a for a short haul, narrow body, meaning one aisle. And it's powered by aft turbofans that are mounted on the fuselage. Like I said, similar to the DC-9. Mm. So noise restrictions in first world countries accelerated its transition to African carriers. Mm. So, Because it was very loud? It was loud. Yeah, because they are old engines. So, so the- it was really louder. Got it. It was replaced with DC-9s, which eventually turned into MD-80s and Boeing 717s. 737s, A320s, it got replaced. Mm. It made its transition to African carriers in the 90s, and the last Bach 111 was retired in 2019. Wow, fairly recent. But oddly, it was retired from Northrop Grumman, which is a U.S. military contractor. So the very last one was being flown actually by a U.S., not carrier, but U.S. company until 2019, and it was retired. So there are none flying today. So David... You're not going to end up on this one. <laughs> one less door to learn. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes companies and aircraft have rich, varied histories. Mm-hmm. So you're clear on this one. Bach 111. Done. Yeah. That's the airplane. So let's now let's talk about the company that's involved in today's events, okay? Even though the Bach 111 was operated by militaries, governments, private operators, and lots of different airlines around the world, the company operating the one we're talking about is none other than the illustrious British Airways. So you're familiar with British Airways, and we all are, right? British Airways is the flag carrier of the United Kingdom. It's headquartered in London near its main hub at Heathrow Airport. And you've been there. I have. Many many a time, I'm sure. There's some really fun posters of the Beatles on there on the... Uh, my London layover was intense, but that's for other reasons. I saw everything and went to a show on the West End and had three hours of sleep, and I was back on the plane. Like I was like, I'm in London. It's COVID. I can't do that. I'm going to do everything. And then as a flight attendant, you sleep for like the first five hours of the plane. So I was like, I can, I can do this. On right. Hours. You can make it. Yeah. So the airline is the second largest, and we don't think about European airlines, right? British Airways is the second largest airline in the UK by passengers carried. Huh, what's the first? EasyJet. 
Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So they have a lot of bargain carriers, EasyJet, Jet2, and over mm. there. We don't even see it because they don't come to the United States. So unless you go over there, you're not going to really know what the carriers are. British Airways was created in 1974, and it was created by the British government. They basically took four nationalized airlines, British Overseas Airways Corporation, there's that pesky name again, British European Airways, and two other regional carriers, and they just kind of they stuck them all together, and they made British Airways. After almost 13 years as a state-run company... Mm-hmm. They privatized British Airways in February of 1987, and that was part of a wider privatization plan by the then conservative controlled British government. I'm hmm. um, just a little British history. So they were like a government airline for a while. Yeah. We never had government airlines in the United States. We did have very regulated airlines in the United States, but we never had like government made airlines. Lots of countries do, though. I mean, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Lots and lots of countries. Alitalia. Yeah. You know, that was government run for so long. And so many others. But I mean, that's why we can't even compete with them, right? Because if you have, if you're backed by the Saudi Arabia, you can't exactly. compete with that with like United American Delta. Like, Absolutely. How are you going to give that service? Right. There's no money for that. Yeah. That's sorry. right. Yep. Continue. The carrier expanded with the acquisition of Caledonian Airways in 1987. We just talked about that. Again, very incestuous business. They're all intertwined. But anyway, British Airways currently, let's talk about them. They employ about 45,000 humans to aid in the operation of a fleet of about 250 aircraft. British Airways operates a mix of Airbus, narrow and wide-body airplanes, and Boeing, but only wide-bodies. They're smart. They're not doing the 37. They're not doing the 37, correct, which means they're smart. (laughs) In October 2020, British Airways retired its fleet of 747-400 aircraft, Aww. retired forever. And 2020, British- I, I've never been on a 47. I want to be on a 47 so I'm bad. not sure I have either. Also, sidebar, there's a company in Chicago that is making a 47. They just bought it from United. Mm-hmm. It's going to be like a bar and restaurant. So the building is like two towers right. or like a tower that has a 47 aircraft in the in the middle them. of the buildings that is a bridge. Amazing. And then it's going to be a bar, restaurant, lounge thing. I love it. It's so cool. Correct me. I'm going to look it up. I'm yeah, going to look it up. might not be Chicago. Up, but I, I feel like it's it fine. Be. I'll look it up, and if if I can find it, post it on the Instagram. Oh shit! Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. But anyway, British Airways is part of One World Airline Alliance, which is associated with American Airlines, Cathay Pacific, and Qantas. The One World Alliance is the third largest after Sky Team, which is Delta, and Star Alliance, which is United. Mm-hmm. We've talked about airline alliances before. Do you understand why they exist? Uh, well, it's a good money making scheme. It, I- it I is. feel it's a because good if you're scheme. a member of one, I feel like there's too many points, right? Like I have an Amex, and then I have a Discover, and I have a Chase. You got to pick a pick a company right. and have all your points be conglomerated, conglomerated into mm-hmm. one. Yeah. So it's a great way of like building loyalty amongst, you know, Turkish Airline and United. I was flying from Turkey to the United States, Turkish Airlines for half of it, and United for the second half. I can check my bag. In Turkey, on Turkish Airlines, I get to Chicago, then I get back. And you bought one ticket. Uh, yeah. You could essentially fly from like Omaha mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. somewhere in Turkey. Yeah. And all you had to do was make one purchase. And I didn't have to get my luggage in Germany that's on the layover. Right. Yep. Loved it. That That's really, it, it's for ease of logistics. Back in the old days, before airline alliances, mm-hmm. if you wanted to go from Omaha 
to Chicago, you're going to be flying on like Midwestern airline. Yeah. And you're going to have to buy a ticket. And then you're going to have to find your own logistics to get from, you know, Chicago to London. And then you're going to have to buy that ticket. It's going to be on British Airways. And then you're going to go from here to here and it's going to be on Turkish. Right. And you have to coordinate all that yourself. Thankfully, we don't have to deal with that anymore. But anyway, we understand alliances. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I like to educate people. So it's like understandings. You got to find the house. Exactly. You find the house. I, I prefer the Harry Potter reference. Oh, there you I'm go. I'm a Hufflepuff. Yeah. Another, um, you know, company with a rich history. It still exists. Still a major player in the airline business. That's British Airways. Do you have any questions about them? Uh, no, but if you go to the Intrepid in New York City, you can actually, like, board a British Airways, like, plane. It's, oh, cool. Yeah. Nice. You wouldn't think of that, but it's nope. there. I wouldn't have thought about that either. Now, we're going to talk about the date. What's the date? June 10th of 1990. Love it. British Airways flight 5390 was a flight being flown from Birmingham, England, down to Malaga Costa del Sol in Spain, or Malaga. Mm. Do you know where Malaga is? No. Malaga is 100 miles to the east of Gibraltar. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's on the southernmost coast of the Mediterranean, of Spanish Mediterranean, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but on the Mediterranean side, not on the Atlantic side. Got it. It's hot. It's dry. It's beautiful. And the route is very popular. It remains popular with the Brightons mm. because they're sun-starved. <laughs> but they're so bright. Okay, sorry. So they take their pasty white asses <laughs> to Malaga on holiday. Yeah. And then they get lots of sun and they come back to the UK. They feel refreshed and restored. And they have and a very little tan line because they're all in Speedos. Exactly. And yep. then they get their melanoma removed with their socialized <laughs> health care. <laughs> oh, it's sad because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> but all kidding aside, the the route is still very popular from Birmingham to Malaga. It's operated by other carriers, but it's not operated by British Airways anymore. They still do fly to Malaga, but they do it out of London instead of out of Birmingham. Mm. Birmingham. Yes. <laughs> very posh. But on this day, British Airways 5390, that's the flight, it was being run from Birmingham to Malaga on the Bach 111. Mm. The aircraft was not new. As we said, the aircraft stopped production in 1982 for all intents and purposes. Right, so it's eight years old. So it's at least eight years old, but this one was actually built in 1971. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit older. Yeah, so it's quite a bit old. It's 19 years old. I've I've worked with a few flight attendants that say it was in its prime. Yes. I, I fly airplane. I fly Airbuses that are this old, for sure, yeah, yeah. for sure. So that's not. I mean, I'm not saying that's really old. It, it, it's not new though. So the aircraft was built in 1971. It had been with other operators, so it's like my girlfriend, but it was only <laughs> with British Airways for two years. I'm so sorry, that was amazing. <laughs> All right, uh, I was like, oh my god, that defined me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So remember, this is the bigger version of the Bach 111. We said it holds 120, actually 119 for historical accuracy. Yeah. I I will say, I just want to point out something just as like a person who's not an aviation expert, okay? Which is the biggest surprise to me when I became a flight attendant is these airplanes are so old and the engines aren't, right? Like the engines get changed out, right? They do. and And the aircraft is maintained 
as if it were new. Right, exactly. So the body or the shell of the aircraft, yes. but like you're not flying an engine that's been no. like fixed up since 1971. Absolutely not. Like that engine is probably brand new or a couple years old. We could equate it to a car. So imagine the wheel on your car gets scratched right on a curb. Right. We replace the whole wheel. Right. We replace the tires, but we don't do it every 50,000 miles. We do it every 3,000 miles. Right. And if the engine is so much as like has a sputter, we just change the engine. Right. And if you did that with a car, you literally changed anything that broke. Yeah. Anything that broke. Or it was like, okay, this part breaks every five years, so let's change it every three years. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's not broken, but not we're going to fix it. But just change it. Right. Just fix it. So it's a it's an old plane. It's been around for a long time. She's seen the world. Yes. But obviously, she's got some new parts. Oh, yeah. Lots she's, of new she's parts. Kim Kardashian. Yep. Okay. She is. Uh-huh. <laughs> Kim Kardashian. <laughs> okay. Remember, this is the bigger version of the Bach 111. It holds 119 passengers. They're seated in a 3-2 configuration. Okay. Three aisle mm-hmm. two. Mm-hmm. But on this day in 1990, it's only got 81 passengers on board, and it was scheduled to depart Birmingham at 6.30 a.m. But... The aircraft was delayed for reasons forever lost to aviation history for about an hour. It literally is lost. Like We don't know. We don't know. Wow. Yeah, okay. We don't know. I have to take a pee. Welcome to the intermission episode of Boo 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 Boo. Stop talking over my intermission music. I didn't realize that I said when I said like my girlfriend. I was referring to 19-year-old with two two previous owners. I mean, that's... I'm just... I didn't want to be like... Yeah, that's, that's not the girlfriend you were talking about. No, that wasn't that was It was one. not an innuendo based on fact. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> I like it. Not an innuendo. Um, disclaimer meant for uh, informational joke purposes. Thank you for Exactly. Question. I mean, in 2021, sometimes you make a joke, you need to have like the car commercial like disclaimer at the bottom of right. it, you know? And then other well, times you make a joke and it's like not appropriate. It's 2021. Nothing is okay. Uh, yeah. I think within reason, yeah. right? Like within reason, comedy should make you feel uncomfortable, but shouldn't be like, let but me tell this racist joke. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. All right. That's comedy. That's finding the line and stepping over it a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Uh, all right. Well, anyway, let's okay. get back to it. We said it was. It had a delay that was lost to history. But eventually, the aircraft was cleared to go, and the captain made an announcement, and he said, quote, You'll be pleased to know that the weather is sunny and dry in Malaga, and we should be on our way shortly. Very official. And he did it in an English accent, though. I can't do. No. I wish I could. Let's talk about the crew. So the crew consisted of four flight attendants, mm-hmm. two pilots. The captain is named Tim Lancaster. Which is a good English name. Tim Lancaster. Timothy Lancaster. The first officer is named Alistair Atchison. They're up front. It was Alistair's leg to fly. The flight attendants, we have Simon Rogers, John Heward, Susan Prince, and Nigel Ogden. Three male flight attendants. Well, it's Three 1990s. Three male flight... It's 1990. Okay. I mean, but still that... Still, though. I, I mean, that's kind of a big deal. As I a agree. male flight attendant. Mm-hmm. So, Tim Lancaster, he's the captain. Captain Tim. Captain Tim is age 42. He's a very experienced pilot. He's got 11,000 flying hours. The first officer also has a lot of experience. He's 39 years old, just a couple uh, years younger than Tim. He's got over 7,500 hours. They were both good pilots. They didn't have any training issues. Nothing to say about these guys, but good shit. Do you know your mileage? What's yours? I do. I I, I have I have about nine thousand hours total. Wow, that's a lot. I feel yeah. like that's a lot. And I'm forty five. Yeah, so I'm a little bit behind Captain Tim Lancaster. 
Okay. I also look a lot younger than him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I but, see it. Yeah, I don't. Know. I don't even know what he looks like, but you definitely look younger. Uh, <laughs> disclaimer at home, folks: if someone says they look younger, just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree with that. Thank you. But they're both good pilots. Okay, now let's talk about the flight attendants. The flight attendants were known to the captain; they'd worked with him before. The flight attendants were not new to the company either. The first officer, Alistair Atchison, he was the most relative new crew member, and he'd been at British Airways just a few years. He was the newest employee. In the crew, most okay. have been there a while. My but look, mind is racing about what's going to happen next. I'm so so nervous. let's get back to the story. So, <laughs> the Bach 111 taxis out at 7:20 a.m. and they depart the airport at 7:30 for sunny Malaga, Spain. Doesn't the first officer executes a nice takeoff. The airplane is climbing. 13 minutes later, as BA 5390 was climbing through 16 about 16,000 feet. Have you ever listened to airplanes talk on the radio? Mm-hmm. They go by call signs like. Delta goes by Delta. American goes by American, and United goes by United, but some companies go by a different call sign. Hmm. British Airways calls themselves Speedbird. So they would have been Speedbird 5390, just a, just a cute aside. Uh-huh. Nothing, nothing really important. But anyway, they're climbing 13 minutes. They're climbing through 16,000 feet. Nigel Ogden, he's one of the flight attendants, he enters the flight deck. While they're climbing. And he asks the captain and the first officer if they'd like some tea. Oh, no. And we don't know what the reply was, but being English, I'm sure they wanted some tea. Yeah. So Nigel Ogden turns around, and he's about to close the door behind him. And suddenly, there's an explosion. The doorknob is pulled out of his hands, and Nigel, quote, I thought, my God, it's a bomb. Mist filled up the cabin for a second. Nigel spun around to see that the cockpit door had been blown off its hinges and fully into the cockpit and was lodged against the center console. Oh, my God. So just like that. Boom. He's just closing the door behind him. Now, not to be dumb, but like this is 1990, so the doors open and close freely. Like we're not talking post 9-11, right? So this is just a normal, normal door. door. Yep. There's no precautions or like one in, one out, you know, Correct. like blah, blah, yep. blah. That's why he answers the flight deck. He just right. walks up there to say, hey, guys, do you want some tea? So you have a sterile cockpit, right? Which is like no in, no out. So this is almost... They're above sterile cockpit. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, 19,000 feet. They're at 16,000. Sorry, Mm 16. So Nigel is clearly shocked. Right. So he looks around the cockpit and the front windscreen had disappeared. Captain Tim Lancaster was hanging out through it. Like hanging out. He'd been sucked out of his seatbelt and all that could be seen were his legs. His body was folded back over the top of the airplane and out of sight. Speechless. So Nigel jumps over the control column and the door that's jammed against it. Right. He grabs Tim around his waist. Right. He cuts himself badly on the window frame because it's bare metal. Right. But he's got his hands around Tim Lancaster's waist. Captain Tim's shirt is instantly torn from his body as he's bent backwards and slightly to the left. Okay. So how fast outside. are we going? How fast are we going right now? Probably 300 knots. Right. I mean, like, you put your arm out the window at 65, and it hurts. You know what I mean? Like, that's nuts. And Tim's legs had jammed into the control column. It was such a force that his legs disconnected the autopilot, forcing the Bach 111 into a dive. Oh, my God. But saving Captain Tim from being fully sucked out. He's only partially sucked out. Right. And now, Nigel Ogden has a hold of him. And oh this is the situation. <laughs> this, this, yeah. I was like, where are we going with this story? You got your hand and now you. we're here. I have my hand on my face. I know. I have been in a cockpit. I have this pictured in my mind. And I'm just thinking, my God. So this happens in a split second. And everything starts to be sucked out 
through the cockpit window because we're experiencing now a rapid depressurization. Uh, 16,000 yeah, 16, but climbing, right? So yeah. around 17,000 feet is what Are we climbing happens. or are we diving? We were climbing and now we're coming back down. Thank you. Everything's getting sucked out of the airplane through the opening where the windshield used to be. A crew oxygen bottle, which is secured by a clip. Remember, you go to training oh, yeah, and you yeah, do yeah. the little clip. It breaks loose. It hits Nigel in the head before it exits through the hole into the sky above the English countryside. It was there. It, it was, was there. Stowed. It was stowed. <laughs> Not anymore. So Nigel, quote, I was holding on for grim death, but I could feel my, myself being sucked out too. Oh my, all of this for tea. So at the same time, first officer, Alistair Atchison, he's trying to break the dive and he's pulling back on the control yoke. He's helping to slow the airplane a bit, but unknowingly, because of the way he's pulling, he's helping to hold Tim Lancaster's body into the airplane because Tim's got his legs kind of jammed in the controls. So as he's pulling, he's kind of helping holding him in. However, boom. However, the throttles are being pressed forward because of the cockpit door that had come onto them and they're fully forward he can't move them so he's kind of in a dive at full power the aircraft is descending rapidly it's accelerating toward the ground and alistair can only pull back and he can't do anything with the throttles oh my goodness you can see we're in a a, a little bit of a situation so enter john heward john heward was another flight attendant john heward rushed in at some point he grabbed nigel which is the other flight attendant holding captain kim lang uh, tim lancaster by the belt and he stops them both from being sucked out. Then he ties the top of the captain's shoulder harnesses around Nigel's waist. Smart. So that Nigel isn't sucked out and he can hold Captain Tim. But at this point, the pressure is finally escaped from the aluminum tube. They've, they've dived enough. Right. And all of the pressurization has gone out the windshield. And the air become, begins to rush into the cockpit through the window. Yeah. And it also pins Tim Lancaster's body more against the aircraft. Oh, my goodness. So John Heward spends a minute, not literally a minute, actually less than a minute, securing a ton of paper that is now blowing around the cockpit. <laughs> because at this time, they didn't have iPads. They just had paper right. charts. So but that's all- also like what they're supposed to do, right? I'm assuming. Would it also be like their steps of an emergency? I don't think this is anything like anything they ever trained for. No. So, no. yeah. I skipped that class of like how to hold the pilot down. I only watched the classes like in the event of an emergency, this is how the pilot exits out the front window. And you were like, mm, given the flight attendants, some of the pilots that I've flown with, their body sizes, they're not, not, not fat shaving. <laughs> they're not going to fit through that little window. Oh, no, I understand that one. John Heward secures a ton of paperwork so that the first officer, Alistair, he can see because he's got so much paper running around in the cockpit that he can't see the instruments. They secure all the paper, or enough paper, so he can see. And John Heward realizes that Alistair is still wearing his safety harness. So he's still got his shoulder straps on. Uh And if he had not had his shoulder straps on, Alistair would have exited the aircraft. Wow. They would have been sucked right out of their seats. And that's what happened to Captain Tim. But now, Alistair... Because you have two flight attendants helping to pull the captain back in, Alistair is now able to get the airplane to start to level off, mm-hmm. even though the throttles are fully forward. I, I want to interrupt for one second. I just want to say the next time you're sitting on the plane and you're in mid-flight and the seatbelt sign comes off and the pilot goes, the seatbelt sign is off, but keep your seatbelt on just in case of unexpected turbulence. This is that moment where you're like, That's right. really glad I had my seatbelt on. Exactly. Even though I'm sitting here doing nothing. Boom, I got a seatbelt. And and honestly, I wrote this and I was and I'm flying and I watched the other pilot click their shoulder straps off. Right. And every time that happens now, 
I'm uh, like traumatized. I just go, go over. I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to do that. Your legs better be jammed into the throttles, or else you're going out the window. That, the Airbus has a side stick. I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah, that guy's yeah. gone. <laughs> See you later. 100. percent All right. Oh so Nigel. So Nigel says, "Quote: I was still holding on to Tim. It was a good thing I'd had so much training at rugby tackles, but my arms were getting colder and colder, and I could feel them being pulled out of their sockets. But the adrenaline in that moment. You know what I mean?" Yes. Nigel is later told that the weight of Tim's body and the force of the air that required him to be held in there exceeded 500 pounds of pulling force. Holy crap. Nigel Ogden is a ex-rugby player. Uh, yeah. Like, how lucky is that? This dude is... Okay, I want to go back before when we were like, wow, three male flight attendants? And I'm not being sexist, but like, that's a big difference. Like, I've worked with some flight difference. attendants that are like 110 pounds right. and little tiny, both men and yep, female. Men and women, yep. You know what I mean? And so, like, gender aside, the fact that he had the body mass to do that is kind of lucky. It is lucky. It's totally lucky. So, Simon Rogers, who's another flight attendant, he comes up and with John's help, the three of them unwrap Tim Lancaster's legs without letting him go from the control yoke so they're able to remove his feet and legs from the control yoke they remove the door from the center pedestal and now Alistair is able to fully control the aircraft and they've descended now to about 9,000 feet so so we're at 16,000 feet we rush down to 9,000 feet and all of this is happening yep. in like what it has to be like it less just, than five minutes it's 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 boom boom three boom, minutes boom, boom. Like clockwork, yes. but not in the order that you'd want it to go in. Yeah. So I got I have a lot of quotes from Nigel in here. I love it. I just want to let's take a second to admire Nigel for a second. This guy's a boss. <laughs> Nigel, quote, I was still holding Tim, but my arms were getting weaker and weaker. And then he slipped. I thought I was going to lose him, but he ended up bent in a U-shape around the windows. His face was banging against the window with blood coming out of his nose and the side of his head. His arms were fa- flailing. His eyes were wide open. I'll never forget that sight as long as I live. So let me explain this to you for a second. Yeah. So he's bent up over the airplane, and you can't see his face. The captain is. Right. They get his legs untangled from the controls. They get his body moving a little bit. And because there's no air rushing out anymore, now Alistair has slowed the airplane a little bit. And as Alistair slows the airplane... Captain Tim's body kind of slumps down from the from the top of the airplane, right. kind of down the side to where the windows are. Yeah. His body's twisted a little bit. He's looking into the cockpit. His eyes are blown open. He has no shirt. His head is banging against the wall. His his arms are flailing like a inflatable tube band. Yeah, raggedy and all or whatever. Yeah, and there's blood coming out of his face. So traumatizing. I I don't think I'll forget that and I didn't see it. <laughs> That's that was pretty traumatic. Oh my god. Nigel's getting tired. Remember, Nigel's holding him. The ex rugby rugby the, the rugby guy. Yeah. Rugby turned flight attendant. Nigel's face and arms are frozen. He's cut and he's bleeding. So Simon straps himself into the jump seat, which is located right behind the captain's seat. The three men are able to position Tim Lancaster's legs so that they could be pinned down on top of the pilot seat once they slid the pilot seat fully forward. But he's still out the window. Yeah, they can't pull him in. Okay, and also his arms his are His knees froze. are bent. Uh-huh, his uh-huh. body is kind of twisted. Mm-hmm. 
and they can't get him and they can't get Captain Tim into the cockpit, but they're able to hold him. Okay, we keep going back because you've said this three times now, right? That his arms are freezing. Like what what what's the temperature at nine thousand feet? So if we did the calculations, I'll do it actually really quickly. Only if it's interesting, you can skip it. It is actually. Like I'm just thinking, right? Like you know that the higher you go, the colder it gets. You don't often think about a decompression being cold. I don't know. I never, I never thought about the temperature in a decompression. I always felt about the wind rushing, but then the wind rushing in. And when air is moving, it also feels colder, right? Like it's not going to warm it up. It's going to make it like having a giant fan on. Correct. Yeah. So the temperature at 10,000 feet, we'll say it there at 10,000, mm-hmm. 9,000 to 10,000. The standard temperature is 23.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, that's cold. That's cold. And you're holding on, you yeah. know. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's just in all cold. three of his quotes that you've read, he keeps saying, My hands were cold, my hands were cold. And I was thinking to myself, Right. You're really high up. And he would have started this off at like fifteen, say fourteen thousand. It would have been feet. even colder. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been even colder up there. <clears throat> fifteen degrees centigrade colder. Around zero. He would have started around yeah. zero degrees. Imagine that it's you warming were... up to twenty three Fahrenheit <laughs> yeah, exactly. from zero. Yeah. But like, you know, like your friend falls into you know, the ice skating, your friend falls into it, and then you like yeah. jump into the ice water to right. get your friend, and then you have to hold on to him in the ice water. While you're freezing too. Yeah. And that's sort of the situation. So I yeah. Mean, there was room on that door for Jack, but yeah, that was a Titanic reference. <laughs> so then one of the flight attendants, and we don't know which one, says, quote, we're going to have to let him go. And Nigel screams, I'll never do that. I just made a Titanic reference. I'll never let you go, Jack. I'll never let you go. That's it. There's room in the aircraft for this man. Nigel would later say that he would never be able to live with the decision Mm. of letting Captain Tim Lancaster go. But Nigel also had been on airplanes long enough to know that if they had let go of Tim Lancaster, his body would have probably gotten sucked into the rear-mounted engine. Because remember, it was right on the fuselage in the back. Yeah, bringing them all down. And it could have have destroyed the aircraft. I mean, I don't feel like you could theoretically make that decision in the moment. But also, maybe you can, right? Like, that's the deal. That's the deal about being a pilot. That's the deal about being a flight attendant, is thinking of the what if. So Simon has Captain Tim's legs pinned down against the top of the seat. Also, I just want to say, of course, that quote is unknown because no one wants to fess up to the word. That's like, exactly should we let him go? Yeah. Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> should, should we just let him go? It's fine. At this point, because Simon has his legs pinned down, Nigel is able to let his grip off of Tim Lancaster. So Nigel talks to the other two flight attendants and says, do not let him go. Mm-hmm. And then Nigel stumbles back into the cabin to get warm. Yeah, because he's freezing cold. Yeah. So Sue, Susan, she's the other flight attendant. She comes up to him. She's clearly shaken. And she's like, do you want tea? Okay, he, continue. <laughs> he, hugs, <laughs> he hugs her and he whispers in her ear. Now listen to this. This guy is just, I can't. He whispers, I think the captain's dead. Come on, love. We've got a job to do. The man who's flapping out the side of the, the thing. The one that he's trying to save. This is the guy who saved the captain from flying out of the airplane. We... We yeah, don't. I don't know the end of the story, right. but I will say, if your head at that speed, at that flight, is banging up against the thing, I mean, I stub a toe and I feel like I've died. I, I didn't want to be negative, Nancy, but I kind of was wondering at what point are you like, I'm holding on to a dead person. But you don't know. But Nigel is literally went back to Susan is like, we have a job to do. They're going to do a cabin prep for an emergency. So no one's holding on to the captain anymore, though, No, right? no. We have Simon... 
and the other flight attendant up front and holding his legs, on and to his legs Captain are Tim. And his legs are pinned on the top of the seat. Yeah. The captain's seat. So he's got he's they got him pinned down on the top of the captain's seat. There's two flight attendants holding on to him. Nigel stumbles back to get warm. And that's when he says, prep Hey Susan, cabin. we gotta prep the cabin, but I think the captain's dead. For, we have a job to do. And there's 93 salt, 90 something. Uh, 81 passengers Sorry, 81. and six crew. Wow. This guy is a baller. <laughs> I mean, he just stumbles back and he's like, help me prep the cabin. I love, love. You right. know, yeah. Make me a cup of tea too. <laughs> so let's talk about Nigel. I mean, we we did, right? I just. Okay. He's, he's definition so badass. Right. He is not an F.A. He is a B.A. for badass. Yes. That is <laughs> he is so a B.A.F.A. Amazing. So Alistair, who's the first officer, he's now slowed the airplane to around 150 knots. And because of that, he can now hear air traffic control. Yeah. Because there was too much wind noise. Yeah. But they can't hear him because too much wind noise. So he can hear them through his... He's got his... He is... Microphone turned... Or his earphones turned all the way up. But... Air traffic control can't hear him because... Yeah. The, the ultimate microphone. Verizon commercial. Can you hear me now? He can hear them, but they can't hear him. They direct him to Southampton Airport, the only runway that is close by. They offer him a runway just 1,500 feet long. It's short. Yeah. The airplane is loaded with enough fuel to go to Malaga, plus passengers, plus their baggage. Alistair does the calculations. He decides that he needs about 7,800 feet, and they have 5,900 feet. Did they dump fuel back then the way that they do now they normally would but only some aircraft are capable of dumping fuel uh, like the oh. airbus cannot dump fuel while the 787 can dump fuel they cannot the Bach 111 does not dump fuel okay side note question about yeah, dumping fuel uh-huh. does it evaporate before it hits ground or does someone's house just covered in fuel no it evaporates it before it hits the ground provided it's dumped above 3,000 feet Okay, okay. Well, we're way above that. Yes. But we can't do it. Correct. We can't, not we can't get dump fuel, so it's not an option. Oh, so snap. we just really have to land the airplane, obviously, right? We've got... But with a lot of fuel, that's even more dangerous than a dangerous. short runway. Yes, it's And dangerous. mixed with a short runway... Mix it with a short runway. It's not heavy. Good. Yeah. It burns. We, we've got... I mean, it's a situation. This but is you final also destination have a, moment. Okay. But you also have a body hanging out the window. Yeah. And the windshield is gone, so we obviously can't just continue we can't be like oh let's go back to birmingham like at this point you got to go to where's close so alistair makes the decision that he's gonna land here at southampton airport so alistair gives the flight attendants the order to prepare the cabin for an emergency evacuation because he's anticipating a potential runoff oh yeah he's scared that they're gonna run off the runway the flight attendants spring back into action they prep the cabin and they note that many of the passengers ask them are we going to die in my mind that's what i thought of immediately before you even said that because that's that's real i was in an aborted takeoff and the first thing in my mind was like this is this mm, right this is it to which the flight attendant replied don't be silly of course not but none of them believed it right like that's your job alistair picks up the intercom as they get slower and lower and he tells the passengers that the windshield had blown out and that they were landing in southampton airport even though most of the passengers already know that 
all of the things that could happen. And in fact, some of the passengers could see Tim because there's no cockpit door. Oh and my they're God. they're sitting close to the they're front. They're seeing the whole thing. First class, some first class pa- view. Yeah. Some of the passengers can see Captain Tim Lancaster's uh, face slamming against that. the glass. You don't really need to prep the cabin. You're like, y'all y'all saw that, right? Okay, we're good. Okay, okay, okay. Right. This is what we're going to do. The FAs walk around, prepare the passengers for an emergency landing and eventually an evacuation. I, I'm... It's just a lot. It's night and day from what you experience as a flight attendant now. Like the amount of videos and BS that you see in the air about stupid masks. Right. You're like, this is not what they're there for. They're there for this. Like, this is the moment that you look at that flight attendant on your normal commute or you're going to Disney World and you see the flight attendant that's having a bad day and you're like, oh, this is not the best service I've ever had. They're not there for that. They're there for this. They're not there for that. That is correct. Yeah, they They are are there there for this. That's exactly what they're here for. So it's clearly dire. Everybody on board is scared. Alistair is in control of the aircraft. He has full control of the aircraft. It's loud. It's really windy. It's overweight. He's landing at a short runway. It's a terrible situation, but he's handling it to the best of his ability. I, I That's don't know. what's happening. I don't know what my best of the ability would be, but it, I would like to think it's that. But I also would like to think that they're doing a good job. So first officer, Alistair Atchison, approaches the runway. He lands the Bach 111 smoothly. He applies the brakes. He stops the aircraft with over a thousand feet to spare. An air stair was pushed up to the aircraft to deplane. An emergency evacuation was was never initiated and was never required. This is not the engine I was expecting. An emergency crew met the aircraft. They were able to remove Captain Tim Lancaster from the outside of the aircraft without further incident. Was he alive? If miracles were real, this one is too. Tim Lancaster and Nigel Ogden were the only people who sustained injuries that day. I just feel like Christmas is coming up, so it's like that moment at the end where it's like, and Tiny Tim, who did live, (laughs) you know? Like, okay, sorry. Captain Tim Lancaster suffered frostbite. Yeah. Fractures to his arms, wrist, and a broken thumb. (laughs) Now you ready to have your mind blown? that's funny. Uh, Well, I mean, he's doing that wacky waving. (laughs) No, I know. <laughs> You're like, what did you break when you were hanging out the side of an aircraft at 16,000 feet? He's like, well, I broke my thumb. I broke my thumb. Within five months, Captain Tim Lancaster is flying again. Well, yeah, his thumb took... <laughs> <laughs> he left British Airways. He joined EasyJet later. He retired at age 60 in 2008. Wow. Nigel Ogden. Let's talk about him. Yeah. This guy... Went back to rugby. He's the hero. <laughs> yeah. Nigel Ogden, he was injured pretty badly. Uh, he was injured worse than Captain Tim. Because of the frostbite? His left shoulder is cut. His right shoulder is dislocated. When he said he felt like his arm, yeah. like arms were being pulled out of their sockets, he was right. His right shoulder is fully dislocated. He has frostbite on both his hands, his face, and his right eye. His right eye got frostbite. Ah, amazing. It's just, I don't know. I can't explain miracles. it. Miracles. It is literally miracles. Now, t- Nigel Ogden took a leave of absence after the 1990 event. But he continued to work as a flight attendant. In 2001, he was offered early retirement due to his declining health because of post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You don't go back to work after something like that. He worked for 10 more years. Wow. And then he, he left. He left aviation entirely. He went to work as a security guard in a hospital. He'd had enough, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. First officer, Alistair Atchison, also eventually left British Airways. He worked at Jet 2. 
He retired at age 65 in 2015. I, I, this is a crazy story. <laughs> I, I'm glad you like it. So the flight crew, with the exception of the captain, which is funny, and this is just kind of a, a little bit of a dig, but they were given the Queen's commendation for valuable service in the air for their her, for their Wait, heroism. except for the captain? Yeah. What? An, no, the whole crew. Like, it's not except his fault. Except the captain. I agree. Oh my God. I know it's a little stab. It's a little. Eh. Well, you know what? He lived. Okay, he did. You that's what he died. got. He didn't yeah, get accommodation, but he got, got his your life. life. Yep. As for the aircraft, it was inspected. It was deemed free of distortion around the window frame. It was repaired and it was returned to service. It spent three more years with British Airways. It left British Airways in 1993. It joined Romanian, a Romanian airline called Gero International, and. The airplane, the Bach 111, retired in 2001 after 30 years of service. Wow. So, I feel like that plane should have a little like plaque. You know, it's like, this aircraft, June 10th, 1990. Not June 10th, right? <laughs> I think so, yes. Yeah. So, whatever the date was. Sorry for yep, that. That's Edit one. that part out. On this day, <laughs> first officer wasn't wearing a seatbelt. <laughs> exactly. Captain, <laughs> oh, captain, captain sorry, was sucked out. <laughs> yeah. AKA, wear your seatbelt. That's shit. What? What? That's no. Oh, I love that you love it though. No, I just I feel okay. I just want to say, as a flight attendant in training, you like watch this video, and it's like during a decompression, pull the mask from the right side of the aircraft, right? And it looks like the alien because it like it like wraps around your face and it like sucks in, you know? And you're like, ooh, that's cool. I want to do that one day. As like for fun, you know, not yeah, yeah, this. for fun. I agree, yeah, but not, not this the doorknob. You know, it's always funny. I always think when I when I when I take a flight, they always say in case of a water landing, yeah. and I always think you mean a crash. No, you don't land in water. It's, it's not called, a water. Li- this isn't it's a cruise. Miracle on the Hudson, exactly for, for a, a reason, reason because it's a miracle, right? Yeah, because most airplanes that land in water break into little bit. It's a water crash. Yeah, not Thank a water you. landing. Let's call it a water. Let's call it what it is. A water crash. Let's talk about what happened. We know exactly what happened, and here's why oh, we know exactly yeah. what happened. Why they found the windshield near Chelsea, Oxfordshire, along with some of its bolts and the other hardware. What so, was the explosion? We'll figure it out. Okay. So the aircraft design. The the windshield is installed from the outside of the aircraft. So it relied on the fasteners to hold it in. More modern designs, different designs, mount from the inside like a plug. So even if you didn't have any hardware holding it, it the would pressure still stay would there still stay the there. Yeah, 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 yeah. In this case, it relied on the hardware to be held in. But I'd like to say that that was the problem. But this is the only thing that ever happened with Bach. With the Bach 111 like this. Just this one. Just this one. It was not the design. Here's what happened. The windshield had been changed the night before using a contract maintenance person. The person who did the work on the windshield replaced 84 of the 90 fasteners with other fasteners that were physically smaller than the nut that they were being threaded into. Oh, my God. So they're the wrong size. See? Size does matter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so essentially, the bolts that were threaded in to hold the glass could have just literally been pushed in with your fingers and pulled right out. Uh, how did, uh, <sighs> we have an idea of what happened, but it's not. I'm it, so eloquent in this podcast. It's not but... very convincing to me, but it, we'll talk about it. So these are common bolts. They didn't require a part number. So the guy got them out of a bin. Boom. Inst- right. And, and he just pulled boop, the boop, wrong boop, 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 size and he just put them in. But right? did you not feel that there was like not enough I, tension? They say that there was a like a shroud that went over the 
hardware on the outside uh-huh. and as he threaded it through the shroud it kind of grabbed onto the shroud but didn't really grab onto the windshield or the nut behind it right so they say it simulated the feel of it going into the nut right i worked on cars for a lot of years i don't know if i buy this maybe some of them but not 90 fasteners no but also like you you've hung a painting or a portrait on the wall yeah you can feel when that screw is kind of like this is solid this is this not is not solid, solid. Yeah. yeah i agree with you but this is the reasons they give okay so the guy was a nut i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> so it was a number eight nut and he installed a number six bolt into it which is just slightly smaller it kind of can feel like it's gonna grab uh-huh. but then it, you could just pull it right out. I had a night like that once. <laughs> Sorry. But they would have slipped right out. And ultimately, they did. Although, like I said, as a guy who worked on cars, I don't know. I, I just He turned him in with a screwdriver or a wrench. And I just feel like he should have felt. That he got home weren't. that day. His partner, right? Was like, how's your day today? He's like, oh, it was really easy. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's really t- easy. Today was really quick, actually. Really quick. It was easy. I Boop. couldn't believe how quick I uh, yeah. installed that windshield. Took me 20 minutes normally and today it took me five. So the accident reports report notes that, like we said, the trim shroud around the wheel, around the windshield may have simulated the feel of the bolt actually going in. I don't know. You know, we looked into the technician. The technician had an, had an exemplary record. It was found, however, that his prescription was not correct. It was too old, and that may have caused him to pull the wrong part in the low light because he was working at night. He pulled 84 wrong fasteners, and he pulled six fasteners that were the correct diameter, but those were two and a half millimeters too short each. Okay, I just want to say something okay <laughs> why are there so many options i don't know that th- that is a question like, I don't where do know. these other screws go and how come they're not labeled it says it wasn't a part number it was pulled from a common stock bin why wasn't it a part number that's what i i can't understand like why didn't it say this part for this hole instead of just being like oh you got to put this bolt in there giving a common description instead of like a part i don't know again you're describing my dating scenes but, but uh yes the technician was not held responsible for the incident both british airways and the maintenance company never inspected his work after it was completed huh so he did it by himself he buttoned it up by himself and nobody looked after it both british airways and the maintenance company paid a fine to the flight attendant and the pilot or like to who <laughs> to the british to the like the to british like the faa equivalent of faa yeah that's it yeah no i like okay thank you for your service here's the retirement here's the balloon payout goodbye right that didn't right? happen this is a gap in human factors i'd like to say it changed but the truth is i don't know if that's a gap that can be truly filled it can be filled by a system with a big s right a better mm-hmm. system of inspection right. etc but not with a, a system of a little s like we can't just be like oh well just do a better job or train the person more like right we don't really we can look into this guy's background but we don't really know what he ate that day how long he'd been up that airplane may have come in at 4 p.m and right. they said oh it's got a bad windshield hey you got to change it before you go home right that dude's probably been on the clock since 4 a.m we don't know but one change with a little s would be to just label the parts. I agree, appropriately. You know what I mean? Like that. Well, the parts were minimum. labeled. He got the wrong ones. But it they, was clear which parts were bin. supposed to go. They were in a common bin, and he pulled the parts from the wrong common bin. But what sticks with me about it is, it's in the common bin, but he manages to get six of them right, and 84 of them wrong. So, I don't know. It here's just, my theory. Here's my theory. Mm. The one common bin had 84 in them, and he finished it. He's like, well, I'll do six of these other ones. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you right. finished up the one bit. It was like, oh, I 
could use these other ones. Yeah. Or try this. Maybe he reached into the bin, he pulled out one, and it was the right size. And he didn't look at any of the other ones. So he just loaded up on the other 89 ma- of them. And never even looked at it. And they were mixed. That's legit. I mean, I just I feel like that that is a possibility, right? Here's what changed. His work wasn't inspected. Now things are double, triple checked. Mm-hmm. And there's a system with mm-hmm. a big S that fixes this problem. I'm not going to say it's not going to happen, but it's better. But it is interesting that your design, although the design was not the reason, the design could be a fix going forward, right? Which is like going forward, if it's fastened on the inside instead of the outside, yes. then if 100%. this were to ever happen again, the windshield would just be sucked further against the yeah yeah. which is logical absolutely i don't know i'm not an engineer but i will say i have seen windshields change most are changed from the inside Mm. i can't say all but i will say most are changed from the inside now Mm -hmm. also the way doors close especially emergency exits if you have someone who thinks they're going to open an emergency exit while in flight no there's just no way because it's a plug they have to grab the door and pull it in. in that cabin is pressurized to eight to nine PSI, pounds per square inch. So if you look at this small door that's 10 inches this way and 10 inches this way, let's say it's a really small emergency exit, and it's pressurized to nine pounds per square inch, we're talking about 10, but that's 100 square inches, nine pounds per square inch, 900 pounds of force being held in. To remove just a 10 inch by 10 inch, no way. No. Now let's make it door size, 30 inches by 18 inches or something. We're talking thousands so I and never, thousands and thousands of pounds of force to remove an emergency exit in flight. It's so, it's so funny. When you said emergency exit, I was thinking like window exits, right? Yeah. But the actual door, like the, so going back to the 37, yeah. that door opens inward first, then out. Correct. So that also does the same thing. It's, a, it's called a plug I door. I never thought of this. It's called a plug door and it does the same thing. It pulls in a little bit and then out. Yep. So if there's a crazy person on your plane and they run up and like open it up. They're going to pull the handle. And nothing's going to happen. And then everybody's going to pounce on them and, and probably smother them to death. Probably weren't but, wearing a mask. Yeah. probably. <laughs> let's start there. They're the one that were causing the problem before we left the gate. Yeah. The truth is they'll never get the door open. Yeah. They wouldn't have ever gotten the door open. Crazy. I don't want to beat up the Bach 111 on this design because this is the only time it happened. The guy put the wrong hardware in. But it's amazing that that, talk about a miracle, that that was the only time that that happened. Right, but now I'm going to show you the window. Yeah, let me see. This is an inspector taking pictures, and we can see the bloodstains that Tim Lancaster left behind. Oh, my God. (sighs) So he kind of folded up over top of the aircraft. Look at that. Then he kind of slipped down to the side, and his body was twisted with his face looking in, sometimes out of the airplane. But you can see two blood spots, right? There's like a little, by that little black thing, there's Uh blood. And then Mm -hmm. the top right-hand corner. Yeah, I don't know how he survived. I don't know how I don't he get survived it. either. I would be holding on for dear life and being like, yeah, this guy is dead. Thus, we had the person saying, we might as well let him go. And Nigel said, no, not no, but hell no, right? I can't live with myself. But Nigel's smart because the way the airplane was set up, that could have gone back into the engine. Yeah. So here's the crew. Oh, my God. Is, what, is that Nigel in the bed? Oh, no, it's the, that's the captain. Yeah, it's the captain in the bed. Nigel is the big guy, actually. He's not as big as I thought. No. Like he, yeah, yeah poor guy the only one that didn't get a medal (laughs) i feel like he should have gotten an honorary medal i mean he lived could we just talk about this they're in uniform (laughs) after like let's go do a photo 
Where's your hat? Come on, Susan. Put on your put on your uniform. She's wearing the uniform because you can tell because it's the same pattern in the tie. Oh, you're That's right. That's why I oh. saw that it was the uniform Dude. because the tie matched the dress. See? So the real question I have is, which one of those motherfuckers said, we're going to have to let him go? And nobody will say. And nobody's That'll ever going to tell you. Yeah. Secrets forever. You know what I mean? I feel like sometimes you're the bad guy for thinking of it. Th- thinking of it. Yeah. And saying it, but everyone else is thinking it. Yeah, everybody else is thinking. Because it at too. the same time, to, I'm going to be devil's advocate for that person that says, "Should we let them go?" We need to focus on the 91 people on board, on the living crew. Not this one guy. I absolutely agree with you. Focus on the living crew. I'm not going to say that he should have or shouldn't have, because but in the moment, you know, I don't like to necessarily like Monday morning quarterback that shit. But in the right. moment, he's flying out the window. There's blood coming from his head, and his if eyes he- are blown open. open. You have no clue to know if he's alive. Like, also, if he's screaming, you can't hear it. Tim Lancaster wasn't screaming. In fact, Tim Lancaster is later quoted as saying, "I went out. I couldn't believe I was still alive." I knew I was at altitude. I simply concentrated on my breathing, and then he lost consciousness. Right. And that was it. That This is his whole experience. Which, honestly... Until he wakes up in the ambulance. Good for that. I wouldn't have wanted to bend through that. So to your oh, point of how did he go back to work, that's how. He didn't remember it. He didn't remember you it. You know what? He didn't deserve the medal. So <laughs> <laughs> He didn't remember he it. He mentally wasn't there for the moment. Talk that's about right. He didn't remember. He's the, he, that's why he could go back to work. Yeah. Because he didn't remember it. But Nigel Ogden had PTSD forever because he got to sit there and hold on to this guy for dear life and watch his dead eyes stare into the oh, cabin while, uh, his, while his hands, you know, yeah, while his flailed. head and his head bled and like this is that graphic. is graphic that is graphic graphic that is nightmare situation with a capital g yes but tim lancaster he didn't remember any of it but i will say that's kind of the beauty of the human mind right which I, is like i, I think this that, is too traumatic we're gonna turn off now we're just gonna shut it off yeah shut it down now if you yeah. watched muppet christmas carol at the end of the movie when the when the uh gonzo right and rizzo uh-huh. the rat are like this is too scary we'll uh-huh. just see you at the end like right. that's what that is that's that moment of right. like no we'll just wrong. see you at the end i'm gonna skip this part it's unpleasantness holy crap and that's the only way that he could have gone back. Imagine had he lived through the entire thing and could hear what everybody was saying and see all the commotion and like, <laughs> there's no way he would have gone back to. No. You just to hear, should we let no him way. go? And you just hear about the one. It was like, uh, no, please. <laughs> but also, if he was awake, I'm not, I'm not dead yet. I'm not, I'm dead, not dead yet. yet. <laughs> <laughs> I feel happy. I'm so happy. I might take a walk. It's <laughs> like, hang on, Tim Lancaster. Oh, You're hang gonna on be okay. To your dad. Okay, that's a, a little update. Little Timmy. Oh my yes. It it just happens so fast. Yeah. So fast. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the incidents and accidents I cover, you see them going from a mile away. You see a right. little mistake and a little mistake and a little mistake and you think, "Oh, this is going nowhere good." And then it goes nowhere good. Right. But then other times, it just boom, bam, out of nowhere. And I mean, I think that describes aviation in so many ways. This is why, and to your point, this is why we say when you're seated in your seat, have your seatbelt fastened. Yeah. Because you truly don't know. I'm not going to say that, you know, you could fly your entire life, nothing happened. But that one time when you hit wake turbulence or a huge mountain wave or just clear air turbulence, half of the airplane bounces off the ceiling because they didn't have their seatbelt fastened. Talk about PTSD too. For a hot second, there was... An emergency landing that took place in Newark. The plane, parts of the 
plane went inside the plane. Yeah. Uh, right? Yeah. Whatever. I'm not mm-hmm. being I remember this, in this yeah. story. And I'm over here and I'm like checking people's seats, you know, and they just did an emergency evacuation and I'm checking people's seats for takeoff. And I told this guy like, hey, I don't like your bag. Put your bag in the overhead bin. The guy flips out on me. Right. But in my mind, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. You're in the exit row. That bag's really deep into the, like into yeah. the aisle. And I don't, I don't like it. Yeah. Not because I'm being a dick. Right. But in my mind, like you don't know this, but I know that my coworkers and one of my classmates just did an emergency evacuation. Right. And I'm thinking always the what if. 100%. So I, like, I, I think this podcast has given me a lot of perspective, as, especially when it comes to especially flight attendants. I gain a perspective from this. A lot of people, you know, come for the pilot stories. I have that perspective. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't have Tim Lancaster flying out of the airplane, right? But I mean, I have those perspectives in mind and I've had emergencies in the airplane. But when we talk about like how flight attendants handle emergencies and how right. air traffic control handles them and people on the ground and, and crews and things, that gives me an entirely different perspective than I've ever even considered as an aviator. The biggest goosebump I've ever gotten to listening to a story, right, is just Captain Sully talking to ATC and the guy's like, what about this airport? And Sully's like, can't make it. Can't make it. He's like, what about this airport? No, can't make it. And he's like, very calm. We're going to land in the Hudson. We're, we're going like, to the Hudson. You're listening to that, you yeah. know? And it's like, what would you like to get at the grocery store today? I would like eggs, bread, and milk. You know what I mean? Like, no, this is a major decision. And it's so funny because I think that the flight attendant job is one of the most misunderstood roles. Hey, Sky Waitress, can I get a Diet Coke? It's- yeah completely different and then when you take that into consideration you kind of have a whole new perspective for the role because you also train pilots too but you train your whole life on the what if moment and then every day you come to work and you're like i want to use none of my training like right i want to go to work every day not doing what i was trained to do absolutely and because i'm lazy anyway oh we're gonna wrap this up anyway yeah David, thank you so much. Oh, I wanted to say happy birthday. Yay, happy birthday. <laughs> and this is going to come out next week or something. But Love it. So appreciate you being <laughs> here. I so appreciate you coming on. And again, happy birthday. We'll have you on again. Please.